Radio Aspiral is a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media. Presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney, it covers a host of topics from international media, publishing, aviation, and technology. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. It's great to be back. It's 2020 and episode 12. Tell you about our guests very shortly. be back. Uh, we have a great guest coming up. He's captain and pilot uh, Michael Glynn and we'll be talking aviation and uh, an update on the case of MH370. global internet broadcast and in audio and video our focus is on media and how it deals with news our core areas are publishing aviation technology and we consider all other things and it's great to be back in this year 2020 yeah we had something of a bit of a layoff i think it's god it must be last 
spring uh, was our last broadcast so um great to be back let me get straight into it aviation and uh, news on mh370 this evening uh, let me tell you about our uh, guest tonight he's uh, michael glynn um, a former qantas um, pilot and captain um, he uh, lives in sydney 60 years old uh, he joined the Royal Australian Air Force at the age of 19 after training. Uh, he flew the Caribou Tactical Transport for the majority of uh, his time there. He joined Qantas in 1987 as the second officer on the 747 Classic. After two years, he became a first officer on the 767 and then a first officer on the 747-400. He checked out as the 767 captain. After slightly less than 10 years with Qantas, eventually he flew the Airbus 330 for 11 years and finished up in the 747-400. Um, uh, he was active on the Qantas Pilots Association, uh, becoming Vice President in 2006 and uh, a work and healthy safety rep for 10 years. Uh, he was also uh, had a post in as a maintenance test pilot on the 747. Uh, he's the owner of a former Chinese Army Air Force basic trainer aircraft known as the Chanchuk uh, C36A, uh, which and he uses that in a formatic uh, acrobatic uh, flying um, team. Uh, they are also called the Russian Roulettes. Very intriguing. He's been an active debunker on Metabunk, uh, dealing predominantly with uh, such conspiracies as chemtrails, 9-11 conspiracies and other such things like flat earthers. We won't be going there this evening. Uh, he retired uh, with a little over 20,000 uh, hours service, 12,000 of of them on heavy Boeing aircraft. Uh, so, without much further ado, let's go and talk to Michael. Okay, you're welcome back to uh, Radio uh, Spoil, and we're joined by my guest, um, Michael Glenn. Michael, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, mate. Glad to be here. I'm delighted to have you, and you're you're kind of the first guest we've we have for uh, the new season, uh, 2020. Uh, oh, good. I hope your 2020 has uh, went well. Is is life a little bit quieter since retirement, or are you busying yourself with other projects? Um, it's uh, definitely different. I'm enjoying uh, getting a full night's sleep each night, and um... <laughs> and no strange hours. I know, so I know that's that's been the the best thing really, and uh, we're currently writing a book, so uh, based on uh, my opinions on uh, Malaysian three seventy. Right. We'll we'll talk a little bit about that uh, during the interview, maybe towards the end. Um, well, if if people didn't uh, listen uh, to my initial um, biography of you, uh, Michael, obviously you're a retired uh, captain. Um, that's uh, formerly in uh, Qantas in Australia. Um, just before we, we get directly into your career and what took you there, just early life, where were you born? Up, you know, was 
aviation always a thing as a young kid? What was the, what yeah. was the background? Yeah, it was. I was uh, number two of a, of a nine-child well, family. So, well. Yeah, good Catholic family, Irish Catholic. So uh, <laughs> I went to that. Uh, Dad was in the uh, armed forces, so I uh, moved around a lot. I went to... Uh, uh, I about five different uh, school systems and about 11 schools uh, in all. And um, decided very early that... Uh, I was going to be a pilot. I was growing up when the um, United States space program was uh, beginning to hit its straps and I was fascinated by it. And I decided um, probably about age five I was going to be an astronaut and my older brother gleefully informed me that Australia didn't have any astronauts. (laughs) So I can remember making the decision when I was about five, maximum six, that I was going to be a pilot. And, um, and that was it, as far as I was concerned. There was nothing else that I, I wanted to do. So uh, I've had a lifelong interest in flying. I had an uncle who was uh, in the Australian Air Force um, flying Hercules and uh, didn't get to see much of him, but uh, he was a bit of an inspiration uh, to me. And uh, I was lucky enough eventually to join the Royal Australian Air Force. I, um and when, after the Air Force then, when did you move into commercial aviation? I had seven years in the Air Force and I was fortunate to uh, have everything that uh, Qantas required at a time when they were recruiting a lot of pilots. This was in 1987 and I uh, was fortunate to be uh, selected uh, to become a pilot with them and um, yeah, it started in 1987. I was... Uh, became a second officer on the uh, what's called the 747 Classic, which is uh, the first uh, what they call steam-driven model, the one that had all the basic uh, instruments that they had uh, uh, back in the 50s and 60s. Carried a flight engineer. It was the first aircraft that I flew that had an autopilot, a weather radar, a flight engineer, all that sort of stuff. And uh, got introduced to the whole culture of um, of uh, long haul airline flying. Um, Qantas has the longest air routes uh, in the world, uh, average um, trip length. So it was all based around long haul flying at that stage. And uh, so I spent a couple of years as a second officer, which is pretty much a relief pilot. You don't get to take off and land. Uh, you sit in the seat when uh, either the captain, the first officer or the flight engineer was having a break and operating the aircraft and occasionally getting to fly, but that was a pretty basic operation. And uh, after three years of doing that, or in fact not even, not even that, I um, became a first officer on the 767, which is, uh, in my opinion, was a much nicer aircraft and a better role. I got to take off and land. Um, and enjoyed that aircraft immensely. And then, as I said, the air, airline was expanding rapidly. We were getting the new 747-400s. Slot opened up as a first officer on that, which is uh, pretty much an extension of the uh, 767 cockpit, uh, but modernised to a... And uh, no, of course, no flight engineer then. No flight engineer, no. It was a two-pilot op- operation, and uh, I spent... Five years doing that, and um, mainly flying to Europe, uh, occasionally to uh, the US and uh, Japan, maybe. 
and uh, then a command open up on the 767. So I was very fortunate again, joined the right place at the right time, and uh, was uh, fortunate enough to check out as a captain with Qantas uh, just uh, just under 10 years from joining, which uh, they don't do now, I tell you that much. So uh, that's all right. Back to the 767, wonderful aircraft, my first love, really. And uh, did eight years as a captain there. Then uh, Qantas bought the Airbus A330, uh, which I'd always been intrigued by. Went and did a conversion on that in Hong Kong and had 11 years on that. Um, really enjoyed that as well, but uh, probably preferred the Boeings uh, to the Airbus. And uh, then a slot came up on the 747 uh, as a captain which uh, was a lifelong ambition of mine uh, too. And uh, that's where I did the last three years before I retired. Uh, I had my last flight in Qantas a year ago today. So I was, oh, uh, excellent. Well, uh, how appropriate. Yes, I, I didn't know it was my last flight at, at the time, but um, I had a, uh, went to get a medical checkup and the problem was there, so um, I took a medical retirement, but I'm feeling much better now. Excellent, so. excellent. Good to hear that. Just generally, before we get into our, our main subject of uh, Malaysia Airlines MH370, I just wanted to generally talk about the the industry, the aviation industry as you see it now. But specifically, I suppose, for younger people wanting to move into the industry my perception is particularly in the last 10 years one there's a huge demand for pilots now in a way that perhaps before then there wasn't as much it was harder to get into it's it's a little bit easier to get into now so yes. just just talk a little bit to me about the the avenues obviously the avenue you came from uh, to get into commercial aviation was uh, through the RAF um some airlines I know do cadet programs um other airlines perhaps like a lot more budget airlines um mm. you, they tend to want you to have to you know pay and do your own training first before you really get to the entry level. Just talk to me yeah. a little bit about you know the the landscape as it were for for young people coming into the industry well, it has changed um, the the pool of available pilots has dropped um there are also, uh, a lot of uh, young uh, men and, and, and women decide it's not it's the the lifestyle requirements of of the job is uh, a bit uh, not family friendly, not a really a, a balanced uh, lifestyle. The uh, there's a lot of a um, lot of divorces amongst pilots simply because of the demands of the life. But to start off, it, it hasn't really changed that much, except as you say, the introduction of uh, pay to play. I actually call call it, um, which didn't exist when I first uh, joined. These uh, cadetships uh, have come in, and they're quite expensive. And uh, unfortunately, uh, due to some of the uh, conditions that existed 10, 15 years ago, uh, pay for pilots has probably not kept up with inflation. So it's it's a big decision. If you're deciding to be a pilot these days, you've, it's a big commitment. Uh, you have to either commit yourself to a minimum of 10 years in the, say, if you're in Australia, minimum 10 years return of service in the Australian Air Force, um, and that's pretty much the same the world around, or a big financial outlay. Mm -hmm. So what that does tend to do is it tends to weed out those who 
think it may be a good idea or it looks cool or something like that, you have to really want to do it. Yeah. And for those who, who, who do do it, and the avenues are there, Qantas is going through another recruiting phase simply because people like me are retiring uh, with, um, and they're also getting new aircraft. Other airlines are doing the same thing. Uh, coronavirus may knock that around, but history shows that these are usually blips and uh, the demand for air travel comes back pretty quickly once the the threat of a virus or something like that is over, even after the um, GFC. Uh, there was a huge drop in, uh, in air traffic, but the demand comes back pretty quickly. So there will be uh, opportunities there for young people deciding if they want to do it, but they have to really want to do it because there's no easy way to do it. And um, how do you see the future? How, I suppose, uh, personnel-wise, how we're progressing, and also technology-wise, how is the industry going? We'll probably even touch on some of these points when we talk more about um, uh, yeah. MH370. Uh, I suppose we're particularly in the area of tracking uh, aircraft. So just generally uh, a broad window of... of yeah, the things that have changed in, in my time was the uh, introduction of satellite communications, uh, data links and voice uh, communications. GPS, uh, that has radically changed the way uh, air traffic control works and the sort of approaches that you can do. Um, the CRM, which is uh, crew resource uh, management, when I, I first joined, we were at the tail end of uh, people that maybe had been pilots during wartime and were used to getting their own way in all things, and uh, that actually caused a few accidents. So the, one of the most notable ones of those was the Tenerife accident of the two 747s, pretty much caused by the captain of the KLM being the sort of person who wouldn't take no for an answer. and, very, and very uh, Demonstrative um, personality. Yeah. Yes, he was. He was a very strong uh, uh, personality. I do find it interesting to note that when KLM first learned of the accident, the very first person they turned to to um, be a representative at the accident investigation um, was that captain. They didn't know he was the actual captain. He was the head of their uh, training section. He was uh, quite high up in their um, hierarchy, but his attitude... Uh, and his lack of awareness about what was going on with him and his lack of ability to ask for help uh, directly led to that uh, accident. And, and these days, very much a focus on a crew. You have expertise uh, in the... If you're a captain, you have expertise in the right-hand seat. The first officers and generally know what they're doing. If you carry a second officer, they can be very ex- um, experienced and... The, the whole ethos these days is to tell your crew members if they see something, speak up, because mm-hmm. everyone can have a bad day. And that's the, that's a big thing. That's one of the reasons why the safety statistics have improved so much since uh, since even when I joined, that they used to be pretty pretty dire, I say 50s and 60s. Gradual improvement from then on. Due to these sorts of uh, improvements, uh, say the SACCOM and GPS are huge things, uh, CRM, I would think, would be the the, the most important. Probably the biggest one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as we move now to our, our main subject, um, MH370. Um, I I guess I guess 
obviously this is more for the benefit of people who haven't um, maybe necessarily listened to all our previous podcasts on this subject. So maybe yeah. we should just generally bring people broadly up to date as to where we are. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're astonishingly six years on uh, since March the 8th, uh, 2014. So just generally, if you could just give us a, a broad summary of where we are now with the case of MH370. Well, um, it would be nice to say they'd found the uh, aircraft and all that. And that's, that's the pro- problem. Um, we know something happened. We know it was probably um, something that had never happened before or, or certainly in the way that it happened. It's a, it's a bit of a um, black swan, if you use that term, uh, in that it's never really... Uh, there have been cases, of course, so I'm, I'm an adherent of the, the belief that uh, the, uh, the per- perpetrator was one of the pilots. That has happened before. It's not necessarily so. That's, I just think that's the most probable cause. But um, we've reached an impasse, I guess, about a year ago when the Ocean Infinity search stopped. There's no more new information, really. Uh, there's work being done by independent uh, groups, which um, I'll touch on yeah. later, which uh, is which may define new search areas. But uh, after, as you say, it's almost six years now. Um, it's amazing that uh, we just don't know what actually happened. We have no definitive idea of exactly what occurs, and that's why I think uh, there needs to be a look at a, a new search and new search areas to find. And I guess as well, um, the, the, the feeling, and it, it, I suppose this is in particular since the uh, disappointment of the 20, was it 2017, 2018, uh, search by Ocean Infinity, um, yes. I, I, you know, I, I get that increasing feeling that the, the Malaysia authorities having wound, effectively wound up the Annex 13 uh, safety investigation team, I, I get this increasing impression that um, there's a deep reluctance now for the Malaysian authorities to revisit the case. Uh, it, it almost yes. sense that for them it's done unless somebody, as they, this phrase they keep uh, using, legal phrase, unless somebody can come up with credible evidence that leads more precisely to where the aircraft is then there's not much point in in undergoing a, a second search and that's despite a no fine no fee uh, contract yes i i agree 100 I, I get the distinct impression they'd like to rule a line under the whole episode um you can read into that what you will um i it's maybe a cultural thing um but um i I get the impression the whole episode was an embarrassment to the company and to the uh, to the to the country and to the airline itself, which are intertwined, as you know. And uh, they would rather the attention die down. Unfortunately, that may be the have the opposite effect. Maybe the Streisand effect here. The more you try to uh, keep it hidden, uh, the more intrigued people will be, and, and they have a right to be intrigued because it's been. As you say, it's been six years, and this is un- unprecedented that we still cannot find that aircraft, or, or the, or more importantly, the uh, 
the digital flight recorder and the cockpit voice recorder, I think they will, if we find those, I don't think finding the aircraft itself will tell us much, apart from uh, where it was, and that may um, be useful in determining how it got there from a uh, autopilot point of view. Uh, there are certain modes which will only fly a straight line. This is one of the um, things I'll, I've, I've been putting a lot of work into. Um, so if it's found pretty much where they were looking, the only real reason, the only really way it could get there was it was uh, flying in a in the LNAV mode, which you need to know how to work, which is another, another indication that it may have been a deliberate act. So it'll tell us that sort of stuff. But the, the, the digital flight recorder... Is would be the jewel in the crown of things to to find the cockpit voice recorder. Probably would not say much. It may be able yeah, to. There is, a, there is a question mark on that, isn't there? And uh, we, we we've discussed this many times uh, online, and uh, I should just make people aware that that we we've known each other now for probably a good year or more. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the cockpit voice recorder is an interesting thing because obviously, first of all, the most important thing to say to people is. And they say, well, well, why, why, why would one, why would one data recorder be more important than a cockpit voice recorder? Surely you'll know exactly what was going on. But of course, one must remember that the cockpit voice recorder works generally with commercial aircraft on a two-hour loop. So yes. once it completes its first two hours, it loops back, tapes back over the previous uh, two hours. That's correct. So it, you're limited in what you can get if you're dealing with a flight that's seven and a half hours plus yes uh, and if you're not and that's, yeah yeah and if there was no one flying the aircraft at the end it's not going to tell you a thing apart from there was no one flying the aircraft and, and apart from we might get some of the ambient noise and, yes yeah. and that of course is if and it remains a big if that something either accidental technical or worse nefarious did not um, disengage the autopilot that something wasn't tripped out to uh, switch it off so essentially there is no further recording although I sometimes think perhaps if that did occur we might actually know more because we will have a two hour loop of an earlier period in the flight which might actually be more important Yeah, I think the, as I said I think the, the, uh, the DFR the DFDR, sorry, digital flight data, yeah. the number of uh, parameters that it records, and I think that's got about a 25-hour uh, recording time. Um, that will tell you much more, I, I believe. That will tell you what modes we use, what uh, if the turns were uh, done manually or in an autopilot, that will, that will tell you a huge amount. And it would also tell you if there was a major malfunction uh, of the aircraft that uh, that actually caused the uh, sequence of events that caused it to disappear. So the cockpit voice recorder would be nice, it would be, but the um, DFDR would be, as I say, the, uh, the jewel in the crown. That's where you would get most of your information from. About, um, uh, I, I've never put this into the, the, the public arena, but about um, two years ago, um, well, let me just put it this way. I was passed uh, a document into my hands um, 
that came from the official investigation team, and this followed um, a meeting with, we just call it, <coughs> partners involved. Um, and this effectively outlined and costed essentially the recovery plan. The recovery plan meaning this is what happens when and if and after we find the aircraft. In other words, we know where it is, we know where the wreckage is, we found it, now what happens now, costing that. But in particular, I was fascinated with the priorities within that document. I, I suppose essentially the impression I got was, okay, if we find the aircraft, um, it might not be plausible to literally, as you would in uh, any other aircraft, essentially retrieve every single piece of the aircraft from the, we, we, we've seen that with how difficult that can be, particularly with um, Swiss Air Flight 111, you know. So yeah. there's a certain point that the logistics and costs of retrieving every single item. So I suppose the recovery document reflects, uh, these are our priorities. If we get there, if we find it, we start looking for this, 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 and see how it progresses and see yeah. what it tells us. So not surprisingly, um, the data and cockpit recorder were one of the main priorities. Um, all of the aviation electronics, and specifically from the MEC bay, were yeah. the next priority. After that, it was get the cockpit section. The, one of the other priorities was the cockpit door. One can ominously see where they were going with that, what they wanted to yeah. know. They want, clearly wanted to know, was it breached? Yes. Was it functioning correctly? Um, I, I suppose sadly for, and I'm always conscious of this, for the, for the next of kin and the families, sadly and realistically, human remains were quite a way down the list and I suppose that's more practically you know how how possible is it to repatriate yeah. uh, the remains of, of people so I that's hard for the next of kin to understand why that was much lower on the priority list but I suppose we're at this stage and particularly now six years on the priority remains not just finding the aircraft but when we do um finding out what happened because ultimately yeah. that's what the next that's what the aviation industry wants to know that's what the, they, they everybody wants some conclusion and is there something that we can do to prevent this be it a nefarious act or is there some bizarre technical failure on this aircraft something that has occurred that has never happened before hmm. just just your thoughts on that because i want to talk about what are what are the plausible possibilities? We we will touch more on social media and the rather insane and completely off the wall uh, stuff that's that's come out over the last six years. But uh, I initially want to focus on what the plausible possibilities are before we move on to discounting why some other theories are completely and and why it, why the evidence tells us that it swings one way rather than the other way. Because I was very much, and as you well know, uh, I'm always conscious of the next of kin. I'm not a person who points fingers and makes public accusations at anybody, uh, be that just general incompetency or failings or nefarious acts. That's just not my way. 
But just if you could just talk to us why um why we need to more seriously consider nefarious actions, be it pilot or be it perhaps hijack. Okay. My, um, if you like, road down the path was I've flown the antecedents of the 777. I've flown the 767 and the 747. And the 777 first flew in 1995. It was about six years after the 747-400 flew. And it came with quite a few improvements on the uh, avionics side and uh, all that sort of thing. And, and as I delved into the what was looked as though had occurred, I realised I couldn't have done it. I, I could not have, if I was going to take over this aircraft, I could not have done it because I didn't know enough, even though I had all this flying on large Boeing jets. Um, I didn't know enough about the 777 to be able to, if uh, if I was going to hijack it myself, to do, to do it in, in that way. So the the main, the, the smoking gun, I, I think, is that there's a computer system on board. It's a, um, called the AIM system, and it's two independent um, computers as it's seated in different parts of the main equipment centre. It's a thing below the uh, flight deck. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in those two um, two cabinets, they're identical. So they're mutually redundant. If one stops working, the other one just carries on. There's the ACAR system, and which is the data link, and the central maintenance computer. <clears throat> and so if you go down the the road of a major malfunction, you have to ask yourself, why was it not reported by these two systems? Is that, that's what happens. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example from my in, own. In, in other words, what you mean is there should have, if something of Went wrong, great, great, been great significance failed, there should have been an immediate ACARS yes. error message gone boom back to mass up saying there's something seriously wrong here, something has failed. Yeah. If I could if I could relate an incident I had about eighteen months ago, I was flying back from Hawaii to Sydney and going around some storms and for no reason it was daytime, we were just uh, visually navigating around these storms, all of a sudden the autopilot disconnected and the two uh, flight management computers uh, went blank, and they, they're sort of the heart of the uh, the nav the nav system. So that's a bit of a concern. Also, the fact that the autopilot disconnected. Anyway, we I was hand flying. We sorted it out. They came back. They resynchronized, re um, re reengaged the autopilot, and continued continued on on our way. And but this was strange. I hadn't seen a dual FMC failure for for fifteen years. Uh, they, the technology had improved in that time. So I made a SATCOM call to our maintenance section and they said, yes, we saw that. Uh, we were expecting a call from you. We don't think it's a problem. We've had a look at it already. And this was no more than five minutes after mm-hmm. the event. So what had happened, a similar system on the 747 had recorded these failures it's called a flight deck effect message, an F- FDE message. It's called a flight deck effect message. They're the ones that get sent. There are small subsystems which may 
go unserviceable during flight, they're not sent, they're all downloaded. Uh, if they're not going to affect the next flight. But this is a flight deck effect one. So they knew about it within two seconds of it happening. And they were all primed and ready to go. So you have to ask yourself, why why didn't that happen on on Malaysian, on Malaysian 370? And you, you come up with the answer that, okay, it's possible, I don't think it's probable, but it's possible that there was some major malfunction that took out those systems on both those computers, which is hard to believe, um, and also took out uh, the VHF communication because there was also no indication from the flight deck that they had they had a problem. So um, we recently had someone on the forum that we both mm-hmm. attend, and he was saying that, uh, and I've heard this before, that uh, the crew oxygen bottle that uh, gives uh, oxygen to the flight deck crew in a depressurization or if a fumes event or something like that, that was near, uh, it's sighted near one of these Ames computer uh, cabinets. And I, th- I think, just correct me if I'm wrong with the layout, I think there's Ames left, Ames right, but Ames they're right. also juxtapositioned in a diagonal. Essentially, one is towards the front, the other is towards the yes. rear. So if anything seriously fails in one area, this backup systems towards the rear take over. Yeah, it should just should just take take over. In fact, it's not even a backup system. They both take turns yeah. being the master system. So, and the oxygen bottle um, may have exploded and taken out all these systems. Um, one of the pilots on my uh, pilot's course in uh, the Australian Air Force, a guy called John Bartels, and he was the captain on the Qantas 30 uh, incident, which was a oxygen bottle uh, explosion causing a depressurization. They were south of uh, Hong Kong heading to, towards Melbourne, and they're about uh, 250 miles northwest of Manila when this happened. And Pretty much that's what happened to them. It knocked out some systems. Uh, it actually cut through some flight controls. The uh, a, um, the flight controls on the uh, ailerons driven through the first officer's uh, control wheel were cut. So the first officer couldn't turn left. He still could. He's on, on the left-hand side. Um, didn't knock out the radios, didn't knock out anything else, but it was a major incident. And the, the thing to note about it was... The ATSB looked into the history of these things, and it was, as far as they can turn, could tell, it was the first time it had ever happened uh, in the history of flying, which made it very what I call these things black black swan events. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, had it happened before? Yes. Had it happened more than once? No. They could never find the reason why this uh, happened. It was as far as they could tell. It was a normal oxygen bottle that had been serviced not long before. Um, there, there was absolutely no um, way to tell what had happened to it because it had departed the aircraft, made a huge hole in the cargo uh, compartment. Everyone thought it was a bomb uh, initially, which it sort of is, really. It's a massive release of um, compressed air um, instantaneously, so it has the force of a small bomb. Um, but that did not render the aircraft unflyable. The uh, communication system still worked. The pilots um, did a fantastic job. I 
was on our past association at the time and I I got to write them up for a award with um, a, with uh, IFALPA, which is the International Federation of Air, Airline Pilot Associations. And when I read through the report, they had their masks on. Or they, they'd been sitting there just about to get a cup of coffee and all of a sudden this occurred, massive explosion. Uh, the cabin altitude went to 25,000 feet instantaneously, uh, or more or less, it was at 10,000 feet within three seconds. Within eight seconds, it was at 25,000 feet. They were at 28,000 feet when this happened. They had their oxygen masks on within 20 seconds and, uh, sorry, the whole thing, uh, the oxygen masks on and we had the checklist completed and were descending within 20 seconds of this hap- uh, happening. So they uh, they did a fantastic job, landed at uh, Manila. It would take something like that. It would it would have to take something like that, and very specifically taking out both of the AIMS uh, computers or the links between them. There are a multitude of that, uh, and you would have to think plus the three VHF radios as well. And I just I find this unlikely. Um, the other one that may have occurred is a depressurisation. Uh, and for some reason, the crew were unable to get their masks on quickly. Um, that's a possibility. Once again, no messages were sent um, to to warn of this. There would definitely be a cabin altitude warning sent, a flight deck effect message. That would have gone to Malaysian uh, um, engineering. Nothing happened, no radios and the aircraft appeared to be under control for at least uh, while it was under uh, radar, uh, primary radar surveillance by the um, by the air traffic control system until it left radar. So that's hard to work out. It may have been a partial depressurization. It may have been hypoxic. But you have to ask why were there no messages? Why were there no indication? I guess having. And, and you know my position from from very early on with this. I, I'm not yeah. somebody who instinctively wants to go to a nefarious reason. I, I try and eliminate absolutely everything else. And I, I, I think well, in, well, in general, I'm, that's that's the way a safety investigation works. They they don't want to think the unthinkable. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm actually with you. This is the last thing I actually want. This is if if it was one of the pilots, that's the last thing that I want. Um, but the choices are it's either that or some mix of malfunctions that is very well, strange in the way it actually occurred. And and I, I think the road yeah. we, we, we've both gone down and explored when we look at every possible avenue, you know, massive power outage, decompression, I, I constantly find every time you go down a particular road, that you want that road to continue on and go, oh, maybe, maybe. But every time I go down a particular road, I keep hitting a brick wall that goes, no, but that that couldn't be. If that happened, then that 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 and that should have happened. Yes. And, and, and yeah. I suppose when you we when we talk about the the decompression and hypoxia, you you then have to go, oh, okay, but why did the aircraft make two? Understandably, the first turn perhaps is explainable yeah. when it, when an event happens like that. To look, get down, get back home. But why do we have two subsequent 
returns of great significance. Yes. One yeah. completely yeah. moving away from home base, and then a second going completely nowhere. That that can, I guess, be explained by partial depressurization in the case of hypoxia, and you and this is one of the theories put forward, and it, that's possible. That is, um, but you you have to remember that. If you're partially hypoxic, you've got no oxygen. Um, you're not. You don't have a mask on. The if the say the oxygen uh, cell, uh, cylinder itself exploded, that's the crew supply of oxygen gone, and the altitude profile that we think occurred uh, after the turn places the aircraft at 35,000 feet initially. Your time of useful consciousness. At that altitude is 30 seconds to a minute, yeah, 30, yeah, 30 seconds, seconds. Uh, yeah, to 45 sec- uh, seconds. And so, and what happens there is you don't become hypoxic, you your brain begins to die. You, you're hypoxic with that, you're beginning more and more hypoxic. I've done these um, chain, chamber runs in the in the Air Force when I was being trained there, an eye opener. Um, very that, scary and frightening experiences I believe initially um, a certain sense of euphoria and then something doesn't feel right here without being I without do. having the competency to put your finger on what what what's wrong with me the that's the reason why you do them because everyone's symptoms uh, when they become hypoxic are are different mine mine were very mild I was I was a 20 year old um, quite fit and I think I um, quite um, I had a fairly good lung uh, capacity. I'll relate another story. The, they would put us in these chambers. There were about ten of us, and, and you're in two pairs, and, and or a, there's a pair of you, and, and one of you would take off your mask. So take take up say twenty four thousand feet, and they would take off your mask, and uh, one would take off the other one would watch watch him, and, and I took mine off first. And the drill is you have a clipboard and a and a, and a pen, and you've got to count back. Mm-hmm. From 100 to um, in you know, some random uh, sequence, I think we by sixes or something like that, and you start off fine, and eventually you become hypoxic. You're not really aware of it, but your writing becomes strange, and your arithmetic goes out the window. And at some point, the instructor will tell you to put your mask back on, and the rush you get of when you put the mask back on is something to to behold, all of a sudden your eyes clear and your head goes, wow, and you realise how hypoxic you were. My, my mate, when I, I did this, was a heavy smoke, uh, smoker. He was the heaviest smoker I've ever met in my life, actually, and so time came for him to take off his mask. And I, the reason I bring this up is because both Sahari and uh, uh, Farik were... Yeah, they were both smokers, and um, he took his mask off, and instantly the eyes glazed over. Um, they were told, you know, start to do the thing, and nothing occurred. And eventually, um, I had to do my job was to watch him and put his mask back on because there was no way he was going to do it. And we were only at twenty four thousand feet, and I talked to him afterwards, and I said, "You didn't do much." He said, "I I don't remember a thing from the instant I took the mask off." Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're at 35,000 feet, the effect is much more instantaneous. So it's look, it's possible. 
I'll give it that, but you would, they would have to get their masks on almost instantaneously. And if there was no oxygen, then both of them are unconscious within half a minute and, um, and dead within, within about five. Yeah. Okay, Michael, so. let's, let's, let's move on now to and talk uh, just a little bit about uh, the debris. Okay. Yeah. In summary, what do we know of the debris and what does the debris tell us or indicate or does it really tell us anything? Well, if you believe the drift uh, analysis, I guess it tells us that uh, they were pretty close. But um, I think it's not a very exact science. So it tells us it wasn't in the, in the South China, China, uh, China Sea and it wasn't in the Andaman Sea where you know, these things came from. It, and it was in the vicinity of where they looked. And I think that's the main thing. But the fact that um, the biggest part they've found so far is the flapperon. Um, is interesting, and I know there's a controversy going on whether or not the aircraft ditched or not. It doesn't look to me like it ditched, but uh, Larry Vance is pretty sure of it. Um, but uh, I think there's you can make a case both ways there. But it it says that the initial um, theory, I guess, going into the Southern Indian Ocean was broad, broadly correct, but it wasn't uh, good enough to let us know exactly where it is or close enough to refine the search. I do find it interesting that um, people say the aircraft, some people say the aircraft ditched, but there was a piece of um, confirmed records that came from halfway up the uh, tail, and I don't know how that happens in in the ditching. So, I just, um, yeah, I, I think it could go, it could be a ditching, I think it's much more likely if you think if you're going to ditch and and it's an intentional ditching, uh, you're consigning yourself to a a slow, painful death. Mm -hmm. I think um, <laughs> I definitely wouldn't do it that way. Yeah. I know. I, I think would, uh, I suppose the, the other thing with the, that that's been noted from the um, the debris that that I find rather convincing is of the no obviously we have. 30 pieces of debris. N no one is suggesting that every piece of debris that's been found around the islands on the shores no. of East Africa is, is MH370 or is even a piece of aircraft, but rather we have, I think it's about half a dozen, seven pieces now, that that can reasonably be tied to specifically to flight MH370. Yes. And what's striking, bar the flapperon that was found on Reunion Island, and the uh, the left outer uh, flap, flap, which was found in, yes. I think, Tanzania, which I think is one of the most northern pieces that was found along that coast, um, is that the vast majority of pieces are highly fragmented. Yes. And yes. many of them lack the significant signs that you see with a ditching or a, uh, shall we say, a, a, a more... Uh, shallow angle of, of, of impact. In other words, there's yes. a lack of what we call compression, where yes. one piece of the aircraft goes forward and hits the next piece. goes so, And there's, there's a distinct lack of that in an awful lot of the, the, the fragments. And, of course, they're, 
they're highly small and fragmented. So yes, my, yeah. my take from that is it's some extraordinary coincidence that of all the pieces that we found, we just happen to have found all the smaller pieces, which I find <laughs> slightly extraordinary. Yes. So yes. that tells me that whatever other pieces that are out there or didn't make it across uh, the Indian Ocean uh, and eventually um, sunk or for whatever reason, uh, we haven't found them. But there's because more of a chance that the rest of them are also highly fragmented, which tends to indicate quite a violent, catastrophic impact. I agree. I was, I was having a look uh, today at the um, Boeing 767 ditching uh, the Ethiopian Airlines. Right, yeah. which, which a lot of people yeah. bring up when we talk about the case of a possible ditching for MH370. It's an interesting case to look at. Not the only one. It's a very... Yes, it's very. They were doing it under a lot of duress. Uh, the the captain was act, was actually being beaten about the head by one of the hijackers as he tried to put this aircraft down. They didn't have full flap down, so it touched down at quite a quite a fast speed um, and broke up. Yes, it did break up, but it broke up into large pieces. So um, I think you've got a very valid point there. I think um, I. The flapper on where it is, it's uh, shield, shielded by the wing, shielded by the engine itself, so that would probably protect it from a lot of the uh, impact uh, forces and high-speed Im impact, but you, you know, I, I would definitely say I agree with you. There and, because, and what, uh, well, I suppose what struck me about the flapper on was if people obviously were, were uh, on a radio broadcast essentially and um, we don't have the images of it, but if people can see those, those very characteristic and distinct images of the flap round being carried by the police on Reunion Island. Take a look at it again and you'll notice one very distinct thing and it goes back to this idea of compression. Uh, the flap round essentially, uh, I suppose side on, looks slightly like a, a sort of slight triangular tapered shape and is rounded then towards. The rounded is what we call the leading edge and that yes. effectively sits into the, the wing and, and it pivots on the wing if you yes. like up, up and down it doesn't retract like flaps and on an impact a very violent impact what you should see is some form of compression or crushing towards the front where it's yes. it's gone forward with momentum and i don't see that on the flap round. In fact, I see an extraordinarily intact flap round, even for a, yeah. a very violent incident. And I, I've always, and I, I am not suggesting this, I simply have an open mind on it. And I've often asked myself, is it entirely out of the question that the reason why we have, and the only two significant large pieces we found, is because those pieces were not attached to the aircraft at point of impact. That uh, that they may have fall, fallen off during a high-speed uh, dive or something like that is yeah. uh, well, that's yeah, definitely a possibil uh, possibility there. Um, they, I know when they did the simulated tests um, regarding the end of flight uh, and the and the fugoid motion, the up and down uh, oscillations that. Um, that came up as a part of that. They said the aircraft went through what's called design dive speed, which is the um, the theoretical. Well, it's not even a theor 
Mm. It's the fastest that a test pilot would fly the aircraft to. It's, it's much faster than the maximum operating speed. And they said it went past there. So you're starting to get into the realms of uh, flutter, which is aeroelastic stretching of the wing. And that, that would definitely cause a, uh, flap, a flapper on to possibly uh, separate in flight. Essentially yeah. a failure of it where it literally yes. detaches. Yeah. Um, before we, 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 we move on as to how this case has been treated both by uh, the, investiga- the official investigation teams, the independent teams, and generally more broadly treated by the, the general public who have an interest in it, um, I suppose, and I, I, I'll be honest with you, as, as, as cruel as it, it may sound, I, I have heard, the, and I, I can understand where people are coming from, I have heard the argument, look, they spent nearly $180 million on this. They can't find it. The possibilities of finding it are not so much remote, but perhaps technically we're just not at the advanced stage to be able to finite the, all the data we have and actually find that credible area where it could be. Why don't we just put this one down to, you know, we may never know. Uh, and let's just stop looking and let's just learn our lessons about, you know, tracking aircraft and make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, what are your views on that? I mean, essentially my view on that is, okay, I understand the point, but that isn't good enough in any air accident. One, for the for the next of kin who need some form of answers. And two, yes. God forbid, if this really is not a nefarious act, but something unusual, or what we call our, our black swan, has happened. We need to know about that. We need to know why that happened. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think I would personally like to see them <coughs> search past the arcs. <coughs> Sorry. I think a lot of the pilots involved, particularly in the 60 Minutes Australia, um show that uh, featured this were all the opinion that the the uncontrolled flight <coughs> sorry is um, may not be the way it actually occurred and the ATSB did seem very wet to that idea I think uh, it didn't it doesn't need to be a large search I think you search a 100 nautical mile square box um, at uh, past the arc that would uh, be all all that you would need to do um, to either rule that in or rule that out. Um, and if someone comes up with a better um, a better route that may have been taken, and I want to mention the IG, the uh, independent group here, they are um, they came up recently with uh, another uh, track which has the uh, impact point. Uh, further northeast of where they searched, and um, it's got a lot going for it. I think it's. Um, they seem to be honing th- in on, on an area around. I think it's thirty-four point two south, mm-hmm. which is obviously on our, our longitude and latitudes. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I tell you the reason why I do find it a rather compelling um, flight path is that I always thought the great weakness of the rogue pilot theory was that the turn to the north of Sumatra 
would have been picked up by Indonesian air defence radars. Who claimed they saw nothing or picked up nothing. Well, they were probably turned off, but the but if it was a rogue pilot, they would have no way of knowing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you would have to plan to go a certain distance past uh, Sumatra, quite a distance away, probably about 250 miles, and adjust your flight path um, to maintain that distance. And so I sort of thought that was a great weakness. But they've they've worked on a uh, they've worked on a descent uh, after the um, loss of radar returns uh, to the in the north of the uh, Malacca Strait. And what's interesting about that, they've got the aircraft descending down to five thousand feet. It roughly coincides with the uh, alleged sighting by uh, KDT. He said about that time and, and about that spot, she said she saw an aircraft flying at low altitude. Uh, of course, the weakness of her description is that um, she said it was glowing orange at the time, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. However, um, I know the members of the IG group have remarked upon this, and then uh, it reached one, a waypoint and just turned due south, which is very easy to program into the uh, flight management computer. So, there's, and that, as you say, that that brings the impact point up up there. So, I, I'm I would if I was going to, I had a couple of spare tens of uh, me, and I would get Ocean Infinity to search the. A hundred mile box past those two points, and if you can't find find it there, well, you may have to go to to Plan A and just say, well, we 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 just don't know. Yeah. But uh, I think there is a lot to be learned um, from finding the wreckage and, uh, as I said, finding the the flight recorders. Um, I want to talk a little bit wider um, about the uh, the impact of the media. Obviously, we're talking about MH370, but I I often, in forums, with people with a general interest in aviation, I I get this all the time, Um, people say to me, Mick, you're big into aviation. What's going on with the industry? Why are we having all these crashes? And I say, actually, that's not what? the case. (laughs) You know, know, what's happening, what, what is occurring is... Yeah. We live in a social media world. We, we we are all so much more cued into media and where we get our information from. And, yeah, th- there's actually accidents of varying kinds, minor incidents, major incidents happening every day. Like, uh, there, there's rarely yeah. one day passes where a small Cessna somewhere hasn't gone missing or crashed in a desert or... Uh, crashed in the sea or you know helicopter we're just hearing about these incidences and the the focus of the population across the world is just more intent interested and we're hearing more information about this it's not that the industry has suddenly become unsafe or there's more accidents no. happening if anything we've gone quite the opposite way in recent years yeah, exactly right i think um and we see it um quite often with the number of uh, articles being uh, put out there by certain uh, tabloid newspapers, particularly in the in the UK. Yeah, our, friends, our, friends, our friends from News Corp uh, with their uh, the Daily Fail, as they call it, uh, the, the, the Daily, Daily Fail, Mail, the Express, Daily Star, Express, the Express, and all their groups in Australia yeah. as well. 
And that's just clickbait. That's all, that's all that is. It's still because this is the greatest mystery uh, in the aviation uh, industry ever, and the because people want to know, they they realise this, and it's, it's clickbait. But uh, and it gives the impression that a more is happening, but b um, when they go on to other incidents too, that is happening all the time. When, when I think it was two thousand and seventeen, we didn't have a single accident mm-hmm. uh, of any major uh, import. Um, which was quite amazing. The um, if you go back and look at the stats, as I say, back in the 60s or, or 70s or even the 80s, it was happening every couple of weeks. But um, the improvements we discussed uh, when we began here have gone a long way, and just the uh, the knowledge of how to build aircraft, how to build systems, how to build safety systems, how to um, navigate accurately have been fantastic. And it's um, I think we need to concentrate on that more than the uh, occasional accident that happened, notwithstanding the things that happened, say, with the <coughs> the um, 737 MAX and all that sort of thing. I think that was quite, um, that was a tragedy. That's and wholly avoidable, and I think Boeing has a lot to answer for there. But um, that was, it's very much a, a safer industry than it was um, and will continue to improve. I often get... Um, inquiries from friends of mine who booked on what I might consider a, a bit of a dodgy airline and and they'll say what do you think about that and I don't say anything I'll just say I'll point them to the uh, flight radar 24 main screen where they show every aircraft that's totally in the airport. and I say statistically you will make it and um, that's true even with some of the more dodgy airlines around uh, statistically, you'll still make it. A lot of that's due to the advances that have been made in aircraft design, air traffic control, and pilot training. I, 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 again, generally talking about the, the media uh, input into this, um, I suppose there are. Um, I, I want to. I want to revisit and conclude on uh, MH370, but let's just um, talk a little bit more about the uh, the, the social media aspect. Yeah. Um, I feel it's both positive and negative. And when I reflect back to the early days, to, to 2014 and, and March and April 2014, I, I've always had a a mixed, I suppose, reflection on the Tomnod project. And, and just for people who go, okay, what the hell's Tomnod? Or basically, um, it's a it's, uh, uh, it captures cells, boys, um, satellite images, would I be correct in, in you know, referring to it in, the, in that manner, uh, explain to people what Tomnod is, and, and then I'll talk a little bit about the project itself, which, which we heard an awful lot about in March and April 2014. Um, basically, uh, it was uh, a satellite surveillance uh, system, uh, wasn't it, as yeah. far as I which um, could focus uh, our cameras on uh, the uh, the sea and um, picked up uh, what looked to be uh, de- uh, uh, debris fields and, and by using uh, uh, just uh, ordinary people, um, they could be assigned to look at uh, thousands and thousands of these uh, photographs that was, were done at the sea surface and were picking up what appeared to be 
uh, the brief fields. Yeah, and, essentially, uh, I suppose um, Tom Lord <coughs> was working with its uh, one of its satellite partners, a company called Digital Global, capturing all these images, and essentially thought we can maybe help here, help the the the, the, yeah. the initial SAR, which was a search and rescue when initially they were looking for the aircraft, and they thought, why don't we use ordinary people crowdsourcing because clearly the investigation things don't have the capacity because analyzing satellite images yes you can do it with software and analyze it that way but ultimately the, the best way is with eyes on eyes on it yes, knowing what um, you're looking for so nothing beats the cognitive abilities yeah nothing beats the cognitive abilities of the human uh, the yeah. human eye and, and yeah. I, I, yeah my opinion on that project was i thought it was great for the first three or four weeks but it's, it, and I'm reflecting now on social media, it started to initially give me all the signs that I think is now awful about social media when it's involved and interested in MH370. <laughs> initially, it was a great idea. It started off, but slowly but surely, and I think this is why Tom not shut the project down. I don't think there was any nefarious or bad reasons. I just think they went, look, maybe we're better leaving this to the experts. Um, this is starting to get a bit ridiculous. We're being inundated with people sending us images of things that look like the shape of a plane, you know, on a satellite picture, which are clouds, which are, you know, um, sea formation, wave crests. And I, yeah. I think the project just got a little bit out of hand with Tana. And it created whole masses of groups of people who really, with the best intentions in the world, were completely out of their depth and, and yes. what they were yeah. doing. And it would actually create, I remember talking to, uh, I won't name the person, uh, from the senior person in the ATSB. And I remember asking him, how are things going? Um, you know, and I mentioned Tom Nod, and I remember him saying to me, Mick, it's just, we're, we're overwhelmed with the help that people want to give us, but we're getting to a stage now where Instead of recruiting people from other departments on this project, we're having to recruit people in to deal with the inundation of emails. We have to follow through everything. And he, he told me, well, I'm beginning to realize I'm putting people in all the wrong places. We, we, we've got, we're involved in a, a SAR operation and we need to concentrate all our resources on the information and data coming back from that. Not go chasing you know, something uh, off an island in Fiji or, you know, something, you know, uh, off the coast of Canada that might be uh, a plane in the water. <laughs> and he said, we're getting inundated and all the people are going in the wrong areas. And yeah. it was the first signs to me where I thought, the longer this goes on, this is going to go more and more pear-shaped with the involvement of people. And I remember reaching out to um, a British satellite expert. And I said, and I mentioned the Tom Lord project to him, I'm well aware of it. Every second email I get now is either from a newspaper phoning me up to, to, to give them some opinion about MH370, uh, 370, or yeah, I'm being asked about my expert opinion on using satellites to, to try and find uh, floating debris. And I said, well, well, well are you con as concerned about the project as I am? And he says, yes, because I've spent seven years training as a satellite. I work on military contracts. I work on civil contracts. 
it takes seven years and you can't just look at an image on a site like digital global or google earth unless you have the correct software and you also are sourcing the raw image itself you're not just yeah. looking at something on a screen because you can look at something on a screen and zoom in but unless you're looking at the raw image you're just zooming into pixels on a screen and you're distorting that image yeah and uh, it just reflected on me where things have gone with social media it's completely got out of hand where we're now on to and this is an area both myself and yourself seem to spend more of our time and probably too much of our time now on and this is debunking non-crap utter garbage you know people who are just out with the fairies who don't understand aviation they don't understand how a triple seven works how it's wired up how it functions they don't understand cockpit management they don't understand how pilots work they have vast ideas and conspiracies and they don't do what investigators have to do, do due diligence. And uh, constantly I hear, well, why don't they go and look there? Or why don't they investigate that? And I go, because of this, 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 and this tells them that it can't be that or it can't be there. Yes. And people yeah. just can't grasp that concept. As, as this certain person at the ATS told me, Mick, if we searched everywhere that people say we should search we'd be searching the four corners of the world <laughs> and we wouldn't find mh370 for a hundred years if even then and that's the problem well, this, just your thoughts on that well this is the thrust of the book that i'm, I'm going to write I, I i didn't mention before but i yeah. spent a lot of time on the uh metabunk uh forum which is run by a guy called mick west who's a very smart guy and a professional skeptic, I guess you'd call call him. And um, I initially got involved because we were having threats made against uh, Qantas pilots, who some people, deluded souls, believed that uh, they were spraying chemtrails over their house and all this sort of thing, and, and uh, they were beginning to make threats against the pilots. So sort of got involved, and but it became a bit of an education for me as well because I, I learned that nothing, when you're explaining something to someone who doesn't understand mm-hmm. this sort of thing, you've got all this very basic language and you must use facts, you can't use your own opinion. You're, so you, it grounded me in a way um, which I think will come through in this book I'm writing, is that um, the main thrust of this book that I'm writing will be debunking a lot of these sorts of things. Um, in the same way, I I actually did it myself because I I didn't know what had occurred, and then realising that I didn't have the knowledge uh, if it was a road pilot to do that myself, I had to find out a lot of things about the aircraft that I wasn't sure of, and, and I've got a lot of information on the triple uh, seven, and I'm always looking for uh, more because I can never get enough facts. But this is the the I guess the one upside of social media side of things is occasionally someone will say something or suggest something that you haven't thought of before and you go okay well, that's interesting yeah that's an avenue that's interesting yeah. and, and it may be someone who knows a bit about it and go and that's for me it makes it worthwhile uh, you and i sit through a lot of dross um and it's unfortunate but that's what sometimes what you've got to do to find that one 
uh, nugget of truth that will help you understand um, how the whole thing went down and how most things went down. I, I ended up debunking um, 9-11 conspiracy theories and, uh, as I said, chemtrails and flat earthers, which you shouldn't have to debunk because it's so ridiculous, but it's apparently um, catching catching on. So, And I learned that nothing beats facts. And, and if, you, if I can explain what I know to be facts in a, in a way that the average person will understand using uh, examples from my own flying career, I think that's probably the best way that I can I can put my thoughts down and that, that would be the thrust of what I'm about to write or what I am writing. I suppose <clears throat> the question that I would... You know, we all know there's been quite a number of books, uh, more than I care to remember. Yeah, but... I know David Sushi's book, I thought, was an excellent book, part memoir, but also part reflective of the case of MH. That's quite a, a number of years back now, about three years back. Um, surprisingly, although he can irritate me at times on the television, but he's an exceptionally clever, intelligent man. And uh, I thought Richard Quest's book was exceptionally good and well worth a read because it, it sort of it touched on some of the areas that we've just talked about. It, touch, it, it took the case of MH370 through the lens of the media and his experience of this bizarre, mysterious case through the lens of the media. But he always retained a grounding in the facts that were of the time. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating read as to how the media deals with, with you know, an event like this and how the public yes. perceive it. Yes, and, and, and you can tell the ones who, who know what they're, ta they're ta talking about, and you I class as one of those, but then the ones who have no idea, which is painful, uh, in, in just make error after error. The, the, um, a journalist who can explain these concepts are uh, very rare. They're actually very rare. But um, I'm not sure if I read Richard's one, one. I've got access to quite a lot of them, but I think I did, but way back. But uh, And I can see why him explaining it in the terms of um, a journ journalist would be it, it, um, interesting to hear. I mean, there have been one or two done by uh, pilots, you know, airline pilots. James Nixon, Nixon's one was... Um, what I read, I was a little bit disappointed in in that because he did make some fundamental mistakes in that, um, particularly with regard to um, depressurizations and oxygen supply and all that sort of thing, which I'll I'll touch on in 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 uh, in the book. But uh, I I know what he was trying to do. He was he was trying to <coughs> uh, he was writing it for um, Captain Zahari's sister, I believe. Um, to find a way that explained it all, but I don't think he. I think he fell down in a couple of very. And, and incidentally, uh, if, if people want to know more about James's book, obviously they can check it out online. But equally, uh, we talked to James on this program a, a couple of times, so people can go back on the previous podcast and, and they can find out a little bit more about uh, James. I suppose my question to you, when it comes to books and on that subject, I, I've as a journalist, I've considered it, but I've always went. No, because it's like um, it's like writing a novel or planning a novel, and to a degree, you never know quite where it's going to go or how it's going to end. And in a sense, I suppose that's where I am with the case of MH370. Uh, so my question would be, why you write a book when we don't know the ending? 
Um, I believe I do know the answer, <laughs> uh, and I believe I can uh, make a good case for it. And and I, I'll be using um, incidents, episodes, videos for my own career to highlight the points. I think that's a, that's probably the point of difference. The working title is uh, MH370 debunked, and um, it basically will show the the process I went through to come to the fairly strong conclusion that there's only one real answer to uh, to, to this and and that's that's the point that I'm, I'm going down. I haven't really seen one like that. There may be another one out there, but uh, it's basically having a look at what, what really couldn't happen, what's probable and what's improbable and what's highly improbable. And uh, basically in it's simple enough language that the average person can get a sense of, of why why I have I and a lot of other pilots, not not all. I saw Ray Yuanda um, in one of the podcasts. He's he's not convinced at all. So uh, no, that's which is good. We need dissenting voices. We need um, it's, it's it's in fact he um, he's an he's an interesting case. He's put in a lot of work himself, and I I quite enjoyed the podcast that you did with him. But um, most of the people I talked to, and I did a lot of this um, talking to them on flight decks, uh, you know, you'd be going across the Pacific uh, at midnight, and there was always a subject you could readily introduce to get a lively discussion, and uh, a lot from that as well. But I would say 85% of the pilots I talked to um, agree with me whether or not they know why they agree with me or not, I, I, I don't know, but they seem to think it's the most likely thing. So that's that's my point of view and how I'll be um, attacking it. Um, I suppose we move now to the final thoughts as we conclude the, uh, the, the podcast. Um, obviously, what are your hopes uh, with the next of kin in mind? We're coming up to the... Um, the sixth anniversary in in some weeks' time, literally, yeah, about what three three four weeks' time. Uh, yep. The sixth anniversary, I think, where uh, families will come together in Kuala Lumpur, um, and clearly they'll they'll be calling once again for a renewed search, which I think is their their role. I I, I really hope they do, and I think. Um once the IG group releases its new uh, uh, report on the route that they've ident- identified, I think they should really pressure... Yeah, they've released a summary, essentially, of, of, of findings. <coughs> yes. They haven't released the, the core data in the report. I believe that that's, uh, that's hopefully uh, just a, a few weeks away. Uh, and uh, I know Victor Arnello has made it very clear because just in recent the recent week we've had an awful lot of stories flying around about oh there's a brand new search imminent which I can categorically tell you is absolutely not the case. Um, yeah. what what is occurring there is that during twenty eighteen um the IG was approached by Ocean Infinity uh, and asked for, you know, is there any update on your your own analysis? And they weren't the only group. They did approach other uh, groups as well. And uh, they asked, you know, please, can you give us some kind of feedback before January? Uh, that was done. They're still waiting for a full report. So if we do get a new search, um, really there's there's two things that have to happen. The most important thing, I think, is um, there has to be more finite and credible reasons to convince the Malaysian government um, yes. 
to yeah. once again fund a potential, you know, uh, search. And secondly, it's an operational thing as well. You, you can't just take on these searches just to drop a hat and sail into the, you know, sunset uh, on your boat with your equipment. These things take planning and structures and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And now that takes Huge. months. So we're, we're, we're well, anybody who has any fantasy that there's going to be a search in the next few weeks or months, forget it. It's not going to happen. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we're really looking and planning at, at probably later this year when the season reopens again, late, you know, 2020, maybe October, November, December, into January, February, March of, of uh, 2021. And that's even if uh, you can get the agreement of, of, of the Malaysian government, because I don't think anybody is going to go to the cost and risk of uh, failure in another search unless they feel it's credible, at least as yeah. credible as before, if not more credible now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would be very interesting. I, I really don't know what they can do to to come up with something like that because uh, unless they've done some more research in uh, redefining the BTO and BFO values, and they've come up with with uh, a higher degree of certainty um, that this. Uh, a the first search area was the right one, or this new one may may be the place to look. I just find it a stretch. I, I just can't see how they're going to get over that hump myself. But I but that's I think that's the role of the fam uh, the families is saying we we need to have one more look. I think I think and uh, I think we need to go past the arc. I think uh, this just keeping it on the on the seventh arc um, is not the way that they're going to find it and they pretty much proved it because they've searched most of it and found nothing so yeah hopefully there'll be some pressure applied but i'm with you i have my doubts but i think they um that uh, be actually surprised if it happens i'll be pleasantly surprised but i'd be surprised if it happens yeah i think as i always say to people um malaysia has set the bar in that critical sentence, you know, credible evidence leading to a more precise location. That is set the bar so incredibly high for yes. any operational search to meet. And that's that's the difficulty. Um, yeah, which is why, why I, I have had my doubts. I just can't yeah. see what it would be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Michael, obviously you're, you're working away on the book. Um, any other plans? Um, I'm about to become a grandfather for the oh, first time. Congratulations! <laughs> Is so, that weeks away, days away? Uh, it's in May, so um, that uh, that's fantastic. It'll be uh, my wife and I's first grandchild. So um, I'm working on getting my pilot uh, license back. Um, hopefully, that will happen um, in the next six weeks or so. In which case, uh, I still do some flying. Um, I fly uh, the Caribou, which I flew in the Air Force uh, down at the, we have a flying museum down in south of Sydney uh, that uh, exists solely to keep these old aircraft flying, and that's just a huge amount of fun and something I never actually dreamed I'd get to do again. And plus, I'm an uh, active member of a formation aerobatic team. I, I do the ground stuff, uh, the um, commentating and, and support and all that sort of thing. So. Between all that, I'm pretty busy about writing the book. So, yeah, no, life is good. Lots of things on the horizon. 
Michael Glenn, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, let's hope we have more positive news uh, at some stage throughout 2020, uh, whether it's to do with a new search or we know a tiny bit more. But we can only yes. be hopeful at this stage. Thank you, I hope so, thank you and, for uh, joining me. You're very thanks, welcome. Thanks for Take care, Michael. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, thanks once again to Michael for joining us as a guest. Always delighted. Um, what I am going to do is I'm ju- we've I have just recently in the last few days had uh, a couple of statements uh, in the media um, from both Ocean Infinity and the Malaysian Ministry of Transport, and I'm going to make them available here in this. Um, segment so you can read them just a summary as regards the uh, the search and the position of uh, parties uh, again um, we're on social media facebook and twitter at radio aspile uh, www.radioaspile.com you can find out about forthcoming programs coming up in the next uh, few weeks or months thank you again for joining us i hope you uh, join us again uh, this podcast as I say will be available on YouTube uh, other iPod iPod um, channels including uh, Spreaker, iTunes and and we more recently towards the end of last year were available on uh, Spotify so again wherever you're going give us a like um, and we'll stay tuned and hopefully it won't be quite so long for episode 13 next time around. Take care.